Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by Dr. Sarah Lucas, another Sarah, who is the Director of Academic Operations at National Lewis University, Florida. She taught, she coached, and she served as an administrator in Florida public schools for 13 years, and then she joined NLU as an adjunct faculty while she was earning her doctorate in educational leadership. She's now an academic leader at the university, and she's the co-author of the book, Be the Manatee, Affirming Advice for Your Leadership Journey. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm glad to be here. Your campus is a satellite campus to the much larger parent college in Chicago. The Florida campus serves 550 students, and most of them take their classes online or virtually. Satellite campuses are somewhat common in the United States. We have schools opening branches in other parts of the country and overseas. A December 22nd, 2023 article in the Washington Post stated, as demographics shift, Colleges are going where the students are, and the students are in the fastest growing cities, Austin, Phoenix, and Las Vegas, to name a few. The students tend to be a a bit older, and they're seeking graduate degrees in many cases, and they're not what we consider so-called traditional students of the past. Sarah's both in charge of and in the trenches of the daily work that makes classes happen at the satellite campus. Academic efficiency is her goal. And of course, it's almost funny in an inside higher ed kind of way that I'm saying the words efficient and academics in the same sentence. So Sarah, you have your work cut out for you. Let's start with what your job entails. You're the director of academic operations at the Florida campus. So tell us a bit about what those responsibilities entail. So my job breaks down in the operations side where I'm helping my faculty get their contracts done at the beginning of a term or at the beginning of a new academic year. I'm helping them with their course load approvals, with their scheduling, with course building, with course shell openings on their online shells, all those good things. Uh, But then I also, on the academic side, I'm a partner to them for new program building, for uh, curriculum changes. I work very closely with the deans of the individual colleges of the universities to evaluate faculty and to observe faculty classes and, and make sure that everyone feels supported and being able to do their job. So sometimes that might be an academic piece where I'm making sure they have the curriculum and the guidance they need. And sometimes that's an operational piece where I'm supporting through making sure that the the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts of contracts and schedules are all taken care of. But I want to make sure that faculty has everything they need to make sure their students serving our students best. That's my job in a nutshell. So it sounds like you're doing basically everything. But from the side. (laughs) From the side, exactly. So you have shared with me that it takes a certain mindset to be efficient in academics, and you called it a flexibility and empathy balance mindset. And I was really intrigued by that phrase. So can you tell our audience, what do you mean by this flexibility and empathy balance mindset from an academic operations perspective? 
Sure. Some of that I bring over from my public educator experience. You know, I was a teacher first. I started off as a middle school social studies teacher a long time ago. And so I started in teaching. And so I'm a very academic person by nature. I love research. I love the instructional pieces. I love building relationships with students. And no matter the age of students, that's just so important. And so I'm an academic at heart, but I've also become an operator. You know, as I moved on in my educational experience and I became an assistant principal, became a district administrator, you you can't have one without the other. We have to make sure that we're serving students by being efficient and making sure that we are using our budget well so that we spend it correctly for our students. You know, with the students in mind, regardless of if you're in public ed or if you're in a higher ed institution, having that empathy for your teachers, making sure you're not being, you know, too efficient for the sake of efficiency, making sure that if something makes budgetary sense because it serves the students well and it serves the faculty well, then we spend the money. But if it's something that we need to work on, you know, to make sure scheduling is more efficient, that we're using adjunct well, things like that, then we'll tackle those problems and make sure that we are being flexible, but while also being empathetic to not only the students and what their needs are, but also to the faculty to make sure that it's not only a good place for students to be, but also that NLU is a good place for faculty to work. So it sounds like you're constantly doing this delicate balance. I've got to be efficient, but I've got to recognize I'm working with humans. And whether it's humans at the student level or humans with your colleagues as faculty and staff, you're just always walking this tightrope. And that's what I want us to explore today. Do you have a specific example or story that illustrates when you had one of those moments where you had to use both flexibility and empathy? I do. So we had a situation where we needed to make sure that students were getting appropriate testing accommodations, but the interpretation of those accommodations was leading to some very, very individual pieces, you know, making making sure students had their own classroom when maybe they could have been in a room with other students, they might just needed noise canceling headphones and their own individual clock, you know, being being flexible and looking at those guidelines, make sure we're absolutely meeting the letter of ADA, but we're not stretching our faculty so thin that they're not able to appropriately supervise exams, but they also feel like they can accommodate their students. So we're not cutting off their ability to support the students, but we're also not taking too much and not being able to get through our day and not being able to get through our exam. Because if you have four exams in one day and only eight classrooms, which at a satellite campus is very possible, and that's actually the situation, then where are you supposed to put folks? So we, we went ahead and just tackled that issue of let's meet with the ADA director. Let's meet with the faculty. Let's make sure that the exact accommodations are being met, but that we're doing it in a way that allows us to use our resources the most efficiently. It sounds like you were having to pull some creative thinking out of from a collaborative spirit, for sure, but also saying, how do we do both, right? It's not, I can I can meet the accommodation or I can, you know, solve it the other way. So it sounds like it was very creative. Let's stick with the heart of what we do, which is curriculum, right? Degrees are our products of higher ed. How have efficiencies been created at your university to streamline how you execute curriculum? Because you talked in the beginning about your job and you talked about all the different things you have to do to help support faculty. What do you do to streamline the execution? That's a really good question. And I've got a couple of examples for you. Some of it's modality. We can use the same program, have it accredited in both places, both in Chicago and Florida, but we offer it differently. So a good example of that is our counseling curriculum is 
the same for our master's program in both Illinois and Florida. However, we offer it on ground in Illinois, but it's online in Florida. And so the modality is different and the enrollment and outreach is different because you're bringing in for different programs, but that allows Chicago to bring in their on-ground program and have a very robust on-ground piece there. But then we're able to provide the same quality, but to an online student audience. So that allows us to be streamlined and that we don't have to have multiple course titles, multiple approvals, multiple uh, scheduling struggles and that kind of thing. We, We can use the same courses between our campuses, but then also have different modalities to allow for maximum uh, enrollment. But then we also have an example when we develop new programs. So we developed recently a program here in Florida that allows for teachers to earn their master's. And then they also are able to get their professional license if they're not a teacher already. And so they get to seek their alternative certification through this program. And so we use the master's of arts and teaching already existing in Chicago, and we moved it down and just tailored it to Florida's differentiated needs and made sure we were hitting the letter of the law in Florida, made sure we were meeting the the accreditation and, and credentialing needed for Florida teachers. And so now we have the program here. And it did take us a year to do it, but we didn't have to reinvent the wheel as far as the coursework is concerned. So that was a really exciting use of our pieces already in place and allowed us to be efficient, but also productive. So it sounds like you had maybe two different ways of doing things in the beginning, and then you spent that year figuring out how to converge the two ways into one. And so maybe there was upfront time and energy and resources, but now going forward, everything is a lot more streamlined. Is that right? Yes, it took that long because there were certain approvals for the Florida Department of Education. So we had to submit an application. We had to do the application and then submit it. And then once we got our feedback, we made some adjustments, then got it back in. And then, of course, you have to go through the accrediting bodies in the higher education field. Um, So we we went through those pieces once we got locally approved and made sure the order of operations there was all correct. And then that gave us time to start getting out there for enrollment and visiting schools and starting to spread the word about this new program. And then that year allowed us to make sure we had everything in place and get the first cohort off the ground. And, And they're doing great. Program's doing well. So having external regulations to answer to is probably where most of your time and energy really went. It probably internally wasn't as complicated as the external drivers. That's correct. And I would say that's kind of the beauty of it, being able to, as a satellite campus, really partner with our parent university that's had this program for a long time and able to take that and build from it. That way, the external accreditation didn't take as long. And it wasn't the higher ed part that necessarily took as long this time because it's already approved in Chicago. So that was easy to do. But then we had to make sure our local and state approvals were in place. But that went smoothly because the expertise and the communication was already there internally. So that allowed it to be as efficient as possible. So when we think about streamlining, I sometimes hear this counter argument that, well, you still have to safeguard the quality of education. So Sarah, tell us where the line is in your mind. Like, How do we make sure that we are not encroaching on the quality of our educational products, but still being efficient? Because I think that's where that delicate balance is so tricky to find with certain issues, right? When we're all the daily navigation of all the things we have to do. Where's the line for you? The thing I think of first is student feedback. And that line can be moving. And it might depend on the program. It might depend on the modality of the program, online versus on ground, the age range of the students, et cetera. So that line can move sometimes. But student feedback is critical for finding it. So we take very seriously student feedback surveys that the university 
as a whole puts out regularly. And we actually have, you know, we have the IDEA or IDEA surveys that come out at the end of every term. And so we take that data and we are quarterly looking at student satisfaction data and student feedback. And we are finding that line and we're deciding, okay, is this where we need to maybe increase the amount of time we're spending on teacher training, on new things coming down in curriculum or out in the market for that particular job for that particular major? Or is this the time where we can be efficient and the students are doing great? I would say a good example of that is um, artificial intelligence. So we're taking a lot of time as a university, not just at my satellite campus, but at the university level to have more training, to invest in some training modules for faculty, to invest time and committees to AI policy. So that's a very good example of when we decided to let it breathe and take some more time because it was necessary for student satisfaction. I think that's a great example saying, well, with AI, we know we're going to be able to use it. We know we're going to be able to find new applications, but we don't yet know it all. And so pause, listen to student feedback, use some common sense on that. I think that's good. Okay, let's shift into finances. Pretend it's the budget cycle time. I know we just finished up at my university, you know, submitting all of our requests for money into the ether. How do you set priorities for the budget? What gets shot to the front of the line? What do you hold back on? What do you defer? Tell us about your budget priorities. It's a really good question. For us, a big part of it is where we're seeing growth. So as a satellite campus, every student, every faculty member, it's all so critical to our you know, budget responsibility and how we are operating within those dollars. And if we have a program that's showing exponential growth, then we make sure we we hire there. That's where you have to balance, again, that flexibility and empathy. Of course, we want one faculty per three students or whatever. You know, we want to make sure that we have so many faculty members to make sure we're doing the, the work. However, when we're prioritizing at budget season, we're really thinking about where our growth is lying because being a satellite campus, we only have so much room in our budget. So we really do have to prioritize because, of course, every program wants a new full-time faculty member every budget season. Of course, they do. And we want to give it to them. So the way we do that, we, we take that flexibility and empathy again, and we say, okay, which program is really hitting that critical mass of student ratios? We think about our accrediting bodies, KCREP, APA, are we hitting ratios? Uh, do we need to make sure we're prioritizing there? So those are some really easy ones that we can think about in order to say we have to hire here. So I would say that's a big piece that we prioritize looking at growth and also um, our external accreditations, make sure we're in line there. And then we also think about new programs that would benefit the market where we are. So that's where we start to think local more than we obviously are one whole university as National Lewis University, but we have to think what's beneficial to Florida and what's beneficial to the market we serve. And so if we're thinking about a new program, we send our budget towards something that we know would matter in Florida. And that's why, for example, last year, we decided to develop that Master of Arts in Teaching degree because there is a teacher shortage in Florida and we wanted to meet that need. So that's how we we really look at our budget and decide between the market, our student needs, our faculty needs, our external accreditation needs. You put it all together and that really gives us a clear vision for what we need to do at budget season. So it sounds like you have levels of priorities. Tell me about when something didn't get funded and you had to use some sort of creative solution. Tell me about your creative solutions for funding. So we have some varying pay ranges for adjunct faculty at National Lewis. So we have a particular category of adjunct where they are guaranteed a certain amount of course load and they're paid at a certain rate. And so we 
make sure to leverage that. If we can't afford a full-time faculty, then we'll make sure we go through the process to get your really high quality adjuncts into this category. We are usually allotted a few slots for that each year. And so if we have a program that's growing a lot, but we can't justify a full-time faculty member, well, let's go through the process of getting one of your faculty, your adjunct faculty members in this category of, of guaranteed time to make sure that you have support that you need and make sure that you have enough people to teach the loads that are there. So I know when I worked with satellite campuses, some of the time was sucked up with role confusion. Who does what, right? They're small campuses. Sometimes people are coming and going. You don't always see them at all the big campus meetings. Their names aren't on lists for things. They, They don't necessarily serve on committees with you. So just having that role confusion was there. So how does that work? How do you work on different physical campuses? Tell us a bit about that. My experience might be specific to me. Just every university's ecosystem is different. You know, it's it's mostly online or if there is a main campus versus satellite campus, I'm sure everything's a little bit different. But I know in my circumstance, I really just had to put myself out there and ask questions and remind people that I'm there. And everyone's so kind up north at our parent campus. And it's been really great. And I just had to not be afraid to make the call or ask the question. And if I make a mistake, I just fail with grace and find the right person if I email the wrong person. And everyone's usually kind enough to redirect me. But getting involved yourself in committees is huge. So get involved with staff council. Get involved if you do have a position like mine where you're somewhat operational, somewhat academic. I'm a non-voting member of the faculty senate. I'm a member of the staff council, like I mentioned before. Like Getting involved in those things so that your name gets out there so they know what you do then it's not as hard to find the right person in the right place. And also listen to the people that have been there. So if a faculty member says, hey, I go through this person for my contract, then go through that person for contract. So sometimes the people on the ground can help guide you too. But I find that just a lot of communication and sometimes some humor. (laughs) And when you make a mistake and email the wrong person, goes a long way. Or you make a mistake because you've emailed them three times in a row and they keep having to redirect you and we haven't learned our lesson. Yes, I may or may not have done that. So (laughs) I'm hearing you talk about the difference between maybe I'm not physically present, but I am visible and I'm visible in electronic spaces. I'm visible within important key committees. So whether it's Senate or some other group, I'm going to make myself visible. Is that sort of your approach to this of breaking through the, I could be invisible, but I'm not going to be? Yeah. And it's not to say that our parent campus doesn't care about the satellite campus. They absolutely do. But just like if you don't know everybody in your neighboring department in your business, it's the same kind of idea. If you're not in the office together, you don't necessarily know each other as well. So it's if you put yourself out there, that can sometimes be a great way just to, oh, that's right, Sarah down in Florida, I can email her, you know, and and that's how some of those relationships have been built as people have reached out to me. And then I go, oh, wait, you're the person I reach out to for that. So it's kind of reciprocal in that way. And just being really service oriented when you first come on, I found helped a lot. Just being willing, hey, if you need anything in Florida, just let me know. If you need anything in Florida, just let me know. And so for better or worse, a lot of times it's just, hey, if you have something in Florida that you need, just start with Sarah and she'll get you somewhere. You know, And so that's been really great and a great relationship builder as well and a great way to figure out who goes where and who to talk to. All right, let's talk about if and how satellite campuses benefit from the name recognition and brand of the larger campus. You call it up north. Your up north campus is actually south of where I am currently sitting. So that's that's a great phrase in my mind. Do you think it's true or only partially true that the brand recognition extends to your Florida satellite campus? I think it, it is true 
but there's a gateway. So Nationalist University has been around since 1886. The, the founder, Elizabeth Harrison, has a storied history with the kindergarten movement and starting kindergarten training for teachers in the United States with beginning the parent-teacher associations in the United States that we know today. I mean, just a storied history in education. And so, you know, a lot of famous stuff, right? You'd think that everyone would know, but the truth is over time, you know, and it's such a busy space in higher ed, there's so many different players out there that once you look and boil down to the the local market, you can use your history. And I think that makes you really important and exciting in the eyes of new enrollees. However, to get to them, you do have to look at your local market and you do have to serve your community and you do have to get out there and build relationships and partnerships. You can't just say, oh, we're National Lewis. You know who we are because that's not necessarily the case. Just like if I were to go up where you are, Sarah, and say, hey, Florida State University, just they're so great. And well, people might not know. Well, they might know from football this year, but any other given year, they might not. You can't trade on the name guaranteed. You have to still build those partnerships and relationships And once you get those people in the room and you start talking about the school, that's when you can really build on the history and the legacy of your institution. And we've we've been in Florida for about 40 years now. So that's really cool. And there are we do have alumni that are around and that talk us up and it's great. And so that's all part of brand trust and building that brand. But yeah, we can't just, you know, hope and pray that people just know who we are automatically. We have to bring them in through that relationship building and partnership piece. And then once they're here, then we talk to them. We're so glad you're here. Here's the history that you're walking into. We hope you enjoy the experience. I think that's true that people still go to college within, what is it, 250 miles of where they're from, generally speaking, wherever they're currently living. So I could see that. But how do you retain a level of differentiation then? So some things you benefit from the brand of the larger campus. How do you retain a level of differentiation? Uh, Among Florida students, like making sure that we matter here. Uh, That's a a great question because you're right. If you Google our school right now, you will find Chicago, right? And and NLU has been in Chicago for a very long time. And they're right there on Michigan Avenue. It's a beautiful campus. And so that's what you're going to find when you hit a Google search. But in in Florida, what we've really done to differentiate ourselves uh, is not only are we looking at that accreditation piece, making sure that we are not only accredited by KCREP, APA, those important individuals, but when it comes to programs that are more local because the jobs are more local, like our education programs, we make sure that our educational leadership programs, our master's of arts and teaching programs, anything teacher prep or ed leadership, all those pieces that they're all approved by our state department of education. That when you get your clinical mental health counseling degree, that you've taken the courses that are required for the Florida department of health to issue you a license to practice as a counselor, et cetera, et cetera. So we make sure that we have all those local pieces in place and we don't just hope you'll find your way to somewhere that's accredited. You know, we make sure we have a pathway in Florida for you, but also we want to make sure that we bring in adjuncts that are local here. So when I came to National Lewis, it was actually as a student. And so I, I received my doctorate here in 2020 and all of my professors were either teachers that I had or principals that worked in the schools that I was in at one point or, or actually the band parent president of my marching band when I was 14 was the lead of the program. If you can believe it or not, I hadn't seen him in years and I walk into the info session and there he is. So it was just the funniest thing. So it was all local deputy superintendents, local principals, local assistant principals, people that were in the game in Florida 
that were the adjuncts. And it's the same in our counseling program. These are these are Florida counselors. We have Florida psychologists in our clinical psychology program. We have Florida school psychologists in our school psychology program. We we do share with Chicago for efficiency. We will have and, and that expertise. Of course, we do want to make sure that we're using adjuncts between our campuses and we do that. However, we make sure that Florida students interact with Florida professionals. And I think that was a real standout for me, not only as a student, but now as a as a leader at the school as well. I just want to affirm everything you said, because if our listeners didn't catch that, what Sarah is saying is that the differentiation for the brand is all tied into the curriculum and the product that you are selling, which is these educational experiences. So the adjuncts is what makes it special, right? Your professors and the program itself and how it will fulfill, you know, local standards for what is needed within the marketplace. So I think that's fantastic. Tell me about, because you guys do cater to mostly virtual and online students, What's your position on whether satellite campuses need a significant brick and mortar presence? Do you think that's still important for people driving by in the freeway or just seeing visible beacons of NLU Florida? What do you think? One differentiator for Florida is we do have this brick and mortar because we have some on-ground needs. And I think it's actually really exciting for our students. Uh, Our clinical psychology program is fully on-ground, actually. So we have students all the time for them for five years. But then our other programs, even though they're mostly online, uh, they are also including a on-ground residency. So our counseling program, for example, students can come once a year. And they will come and meet in October and, and interact and be in person. We, we do value that face-to-face benefit of school and being able to meet each other as students, but also being able to meet your professors. Uh, that's really important to us. So we have low residency models where uh, we'll have students come in uh, once a term. They might come in once a year, depending on the program, but we definitely take full advantage of our brick and mortar uh, location to make sure that students have a place they can call home. And we hold events here. We had a welcome back celebration just a couple of weeks ago where we invited all of our students and they can come. We'll hold events for faculty on the campus so that the faculty feel connected. You know, I think that's another big piece is making sure the faculty know they have a place where they can call home. And I think that's really an added value of those low residency ideas. And even if a program is mostly online, there's still a place to come to. And there's a building they can point to and say, hey, I went there. I hear you talking about a sense of belonging. Right. That idea of like, I could go there to a physical place, even if I'm not there often. Right. My low residency model or a faculty member. Who do I talk to if I have a payroll issue or an insurance issue or I want to meet with a student? You know, that kind of thing. Okay, so we talked a lot about all the great things that are happening, but I'm sure you have faced a challenge or two along the way. So tell me about some of the challenges in operating a satellite campus. Well, there's been a unique challenge here and now, and that is the post-COVID rebuild, because we've had a lot of different partnerships, relationships in our communities. But since COVID, there's been turnover within the organizations we have partnerships with. People might have decided to leave or take another job or et cetera. Just a very different time when we were facing various forms of lockdown and restrictions and things like that. And our jobs all looked a little different for a little while. And so we had to kind of reestablish, you know, we were an education satellite first and then gradually brought on the mental health and business programs. And 
So for example, we had partnerships with school districts, but people changed personnel wise, or, you know, we couldn't go into schools for a couple of years. If you weren't a parent, you couldn't enter a school building because of the health regulations, which all made perfect sense. But it did, of course, keep us from doing a, a information table for teachers and that kind of thing and, and doing residencies in a high school library. You know, we kind of had to pull back on that. And so some of those relationships just changed, if you will. And so over the last maybe year and a half, we've just been rebuilding that and just getting back out there. And a lot of people are happy to see us again, but it's just been kind of rebuilding those pieces. And then enrollment, I would say, is another challenge for a satellite campus. Every student matters everywhere, whether you have 40,000 students or 40 students. Those numbers are a little heavier when you're a smaller campus. So we have to make sure that we're hitting enrollment goals all the time and that we are not becoming complacent if we're seeing some growth. You know, we have to make sure that we are continuing to build up all of our programs and and not just relying on the ones that are growing fast and making sure we're keeping everybody as high quality as possible. So there's definitely some varying challenges and some of them are kind of timely, but I will say that all of it's worth it. I can't say that I've had a better job. So we're, we're having a good time at NLU Florida still. I'm glad to hear that. So is efficiency the answer during a downturn, whether it's enrollment or COVID residual hangover, if you will? Does efficiency address those problems? I think it's part of the problem solving conversation, because if we need to get out there and rebuild relationships with district partners, let's say, then that means we need to get people in their cars to those locations, talking to people, spending the time, which means they may not be able to do other things. So you might have to deploy people who aren't always out there, but need to get out there. I've gone and visited schools. I've gone to events, you know, just getting more people out there in the community and just kind of using your sources differently. I come from education. So sometimes I'll go out to a school event myself or a a district event myself. And I'm always willing to do that. So sometimes efficiency looks like everybody all hands on deck, you know, making sure that everybody's willing to participate. And so efficiency, I think, is part of the broader conversation. Some of it's budgetary. You know, if we've seen kind of a rollback in enrollment because of XYZ problem, then we have to figure out how are we leveraging adjuncts? How are we leveraging our full-time folks? How are we leveraging curriculum development? Is now the right time for this and that? You know, making sure we're just constantly looking at everything. I think that would be the efficiency key is making sure that you don't ignore any little part and that you're constantly evaluating and going through cycles of improvement to make sure that you're leveraging your people, leveraging your resources, and making sure that you're in communication with your home campus as well. Okay. Imagine you are a college leader and you are going to open a branch campus, or you're going to acquire a small campus because we know mergers are becoming more common nowadays. What recommendations would you give the leader from an academic operational side? Well, there's two sides to that coin. So if you're going through a situation where you're starting a smaller campus, you're opening a branch, you have to look at your local market. What's around? What's the chamber of commerce like? Are they looking for partners? Can you get into a meeting? Can you go into the mayor's committee? Can you go into the local school district office? What are you offering and how can you serve? And you're also looking for service opportunities that are just that. How are you serving? Is your staff going out and doing volunteer opportunities as team building? You know, are you going out there and just getting your name out there as 
just a good community member. And I think that's huge. You know, we went and marched in the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Parade for Tampa, and it was just a joy. And we just made a great name for ourselves as the group with the really fun dancing mascot. And we had a really good time. But even little things like that for a new campus or a satellite campus that's looking to grow, that can go a long way of just that brand trust idea that, hey, I've heard of them before. Let me go there. Let me see what degrees they have. But then the flip side, if you're acquiring a new group or merging with another university, that's a real big exercise in change management and change leadership and making sure that you're accounting for the loss that your new partners are experiencing of losing their way of work and their knowledge of where they're coming from and their institutional knowledge kind of not being valid anymore because their institution isn't there anymore. And then welcoming them in while also understanding that the way things operated in their former job might be different than the way we operate on our campus. And so we have to make sure that we're accommodating for that time for adjustment and that we're supporting and we're also listening because maybe they're coming in with a great idea for how things could work. So it's important to be really good listeners, really big empathizers uh, if you're going through a merger because you do have to kind of take care of people's you know, emotions and feelings about taking a a loss and then coming over and joining something new and that fear of change and that fear of difference. And and they're going to bring over students as well. So you want to support those students. And so it's both situations come with challenges, but both are very overcomable as long as you kind of go into it with open eyes on how to serve the people you're working with. So I just want to summarize that in case anyone didn't quite catch it. You talked a lot about building brand trust. You talked about investing in the community. And you talked about how that idea that your relationship, so the satellite campus's relationship with the community has to be two-way. It's not, look, here we are. Everybody love us. Everybody come to us. But rather, what do you need? How do we serve you best? Oh, maybe we have to make some adjustments based on what you've said. Yeah, it's huge. Making sure that we're doing the right thing for the community we're in. So Chicago has organizations they work with all the time and they have their community outreach events. And that's really great. And it works for them in the city of Chicago. And sometimes we'll do similar things, but we have to look at what's important to our part of Florida and and what's important in our community because they are different communities. And so we have to differentiate a little bit, but it's all about service in the end. All right, as we're wrapping up, what's your best advice for college leaders to operate a financially viable institution? It could be related to academic operations and efficiency, or it could be related to anything else. I would say don't fear change because it's coming. So if you're wanting to make sure that you're financially viable, you might have to shift with the market. If you want to make sure you're financially viable, you have to make sure you're willing to shift with the times. I mean, when we went, when we hit COVID, we had to make sure that we were able to meet students' needs as well as we could previously, but in a virtual setting. And it it required us to make a lot of shifts. Everyone went through that. All the listeners have gone through that, I'm sure. Don't be afraid of what's in front of you and evolving and keep looking for new modes of delivery and, and looking for ways you can be flexible for students. You know, just because a student comes to you with a, a dislike or something they had a problem with, or, you know, don't be afraid to look at what they're saying and listen to what they're saying and use it as an opportunity to examine your processes. Maybe it's something you can change. Maybe it's something, even if you can't change it, how are we communicating what it is that they're not happy about? Maybe we need to adjust our language and our advertising. It's just making sure that you're constantly open to changing with the world around you so that you can continue to enroll, continue to be successful, and continue to turn out really awesome graduates. Sarah, you have given me an idea for the next podcast we're going to do together, and it's about the cost of change. Sounds great. All right. I think you're (laughs) going to have to lead that for us. I'm not sure... I, change is hard in higher ed. 
It really is. And golly, that empathy theme just keeps coming back because you, you just have to have a ton of it. Flexibility sure. and empathy. I love it. Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. I know some listeners are going to want to reach out to you and learn more about your work and your book. The book title is Be the Manatee, Affirming Advice for Your Leadership Journey. And I'll include that link for the book as well as your LinkedIn profile in our show notes. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.